Luke Janke is an APRA registered psychologist. We brought Luke on to highlight Tackle Your Feelings and the work he's been doing as the program's psychologist. And at least do something! Don't ever let me dominate you! Nothing more tigerish than a bloody tiger! That's bloody right! This is the Coach's Box. Thanks for joining us, Luke, on the Coach's Box. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. It's great to be here. We'll get into the, the flow of things, I guess. And with with this, we've, we've spoken to a number of different coaches around when they got the coaching bug, but obviously you're not a coach specifically. So we'll get into your psychology background. What was it that made you decide you wanted to be a psychologist? Look, for, from an early age, I think I was always interested in behaviour. I was always interested in the people around me, why they did what they did, how they thought what they thought, why certain things impacted them and not me and some things impacted me and not them. So I was sort of always around that space of behaviour and thinking and emotions. And I guess I sort of just ran with it. I I was always a a pretty socially aware, socially conscious kid. And growing up, that was just an area of study, I guess, that I was passionate about and happy to look into. I think Mm -hmm. when you're studying early days, you're you're trying to find things that you're interested in and that you're passionate about. And that kind of makes the study easier. So I think for me, it was always just a personal interest of mine where did sport come into it sport came into it look over the course of my life I've I've always been very interested in sport and music and I actually recall there was there was a conversation I had with a a cousin of mine once upon a time I think it was we would have been late teenagers we had just started in our first couple of jobs and we weren't too happy that we had to spend so much time (laughs) working and we kind of started doing the maths in our head we're thinking okay if we want to have a roof over our head, we want to eat food and do activities, you have to work to earn money. And it was kind of like, that means there's a lot of hours in our week that's spent doing work. And so if I have to do a lot of time doing something, I want to try and marry up as many of my interests and passions as possible. So I've got this thing of, I'm interested in people and helping people and working around behavior and emotions. And then it was always kind of a dream. It's like someday down the path, if I can tie that into sport or music, that'd be the dream come true. And it was a a really privileged sort of way of thinking of if that was ever possible. But now I've kind of been able to make it work in some way and it's it's awesome. Yeah, I like it. You you played a bit of footy with Ajax Footy Club as well. Correct. Um, Bit of like your your nickname, Shoulders. So I imagine that sort of (laughs) relates to the shoulder injuries that you've had. So I I, I grew up, I was part of the fabric of my local community football club. My, My dad was the president of the seniors. My uncle was the president of the juniors. My two brothers were club champions. My cousin was this Alan Didak half-forward freakish <laughs> character as well. So yep. it was always on the cards for me. I was always around about the mark playing. Um, I never really reached the heights that my brothers did and my cousin did, but still still really involved in it. And I guess after under-19s, I took a bit of a gap year. I came back and it was first game, first training of the preseason. I tore my PCL. So I missed three months, yep. came back in my return game, popped both of my shoulders, <laughs> and that was the start of a 10-year journey of popping my shoulders yeah. every other week. Yeah. No, it's uh, disappointing, mate, and I'm sure, yeah, you could have reached illustrious heights if, if those shoulders didn't pop. Yeah, thankfully I get to <laughs> operate in that world of, oh, what could have been. You yeah, know? that's so. it. That, that's a good, good world to be in. With your role, I guess, the, the psychology side of things, how important is it? Is that role in the modern day sporting landscape, particularly at elite, at, um, elite clubs, but also within community clubs as well? I think it's I think it's really important on, on a couple of fronts. Um, I think there are the 
industry-specific challenges and then there's the yep. general side of stuff. So if we talk about football and performance and competition in general, there's all of the stuff that comes with that, you know, wins and losses, injuries and rehab, um, selection, execution, general performance stuff. So I think when it comes to athletes, there's there's that level, but also then there's just the general well-being of people that yeah. comes into the fold with anything that we do, whether it's sport whether it's our hobbies or it's our relationships. Mm-hmm. I think generally speaking, our well-being has a really big impact on the way that we're able to go about and do things. Yeah. And so I think as an industry, we're, we're certainly moving closer towards this perception of the athletes that we're working with aren't just footballers. They're, yeah. it's, it's like you're Ben Guthrie and a footballer. Mm-hmm. And so feeding into both of those things at the same time gives us actually it's like this cycle circle where it comes back and yep. you know if you're feeling happier and better about things your performance is actually likely to be better as well and how about for you was there a time or, or an event i guess in your adult life that really gave you purpose when it came to pursuing a career in psychology a moment in my life that gave purpose to psychology mm. specific to sport it's funny I, I think growing up having my two brothers as they, they were like They'd win their BNFs every year and then they'd win the club champion awards. Yeah. I remember going to award nights and the two of them would come home with all this silverware. <laughs> and I was almost nervous leading into it because it was like, how am I going to field the questions? How am I going to walk around with my head up high? Next, that like, my parents are going to want to take photos of the three janky boys. <laughs> it's like these two guys have got medals and trophies and yeah. I don't. And I think that actually gave me an insight into the different kind of people and the different positions that people have yep. at football clubs. And I never felt like an outsider. I never felt like I didn't have something to contribute, but I did notice that I was contributing different things to specifically my brothers. Mm-hmm. So as I was developing this mind and appetite for psychology, I was also learning a lot about myself and my identity and my belonging in a space that was really important to me in the football club. Yep. So when I think back to purposeful moments that really made me want to work with the community and get around people... I think back to that a lot as, strangely enough, being really f- formative for me. Mm. Let's delve a little bit deeper into your profession. What are some of the key indications that a player might be struggling with their mental health? Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think often we look for universal signs. It's like, tell me the three things that will let me know that mm. someone's struggling. But I think the reality is that we all experience the world in a unique way. So everything's going to hit a little bit differently. So the, the big thing that I looked for that I look for is a shift. So either way, for better or worse, for more or less, um, a, a shift in someone's behaviour or the way that they look or the way that they're talking about things. So it, it's not one specific thing like, oh, if someone's had a bad night's sleep, this is a red flag, mm. but rather what do they usually do and what's happening now? Yeah, it's a bit of a pattern, isn't it? Yeah, and, and I guess with the, with that pattern, with the shifts that we're noticing, yeah. I'd probably be looking out for persistence. Mm. So, you know, how long has something been, how long has this change been in effect for? Yep. Um, as well as, I guess, how pervasive is this thing? How, how generalised has it become in their life? So, like an example, I'll, I'll roll with that sleep one. Yeah. If someone has a bad night's sleep, that's completely fine mm-hmm. might be hot outside might have had a big day at work they might have a big meeting the next day or something um, so it's pretty normal and natural and common for a one-off sort of thing to happen but if I started to notice that my sleeping patterns had been out of whack for a week or two weeks yeah. or three weeks then I'm starting to see this shift from 
my normal sleeping behaviour that's become quite persistent. With the pervasiveness stuff, it's kind of like how much of your life is it starting to take mm. over? Lots of people do things and might procrastinate. I've got to make a couple of big calls or got a meeting with a coach and I'm kind of putting it off a little bit. Yeah, That's fine, but if it transforms into I'm completely avoiding the football club or I'm not looking at my phone and it's been three days, then again we start to think, okay, this is quite a significant shift. Yep. Maybe that's telling us a little bit more and it might be time to explore a little bit more. Yeah. On that, if a coach senses something's not right with a player, what should their next steps be, do you think? Yeah, so I, I love this question and this is why um, I'm so passionate about the work we do with Tackle yep. Your Feelings. I think the coach has a really, really valuable and powerful role to play. If we think about football coaches in the landscape of a football club, these are people who get to see the entire playing group two, three, four times a week. They have incredible oversight. At community level, there are people, there are, there are players who see their coaches more than they see members of their family. Yeah. And they certainly like and respect and look to their coaches yep. more than they do other people. So I see the coaches in this invaluable position where they've got oversight to really get to know a group of people, learn how they operate and really get a sense of what's going on. So that puts them in the position to recognise these shifts. Yep. And I think that's half the battle. Like if you can understand that people are going to experience challenges, their, their mental health will shift. Mm -hmm. If you've got the capacity to recognise what's going on, then you're in this position where you can respond to things. And I think coaches' most powerful play here is to be a connector. So they see things, then they can go and connect to that person themselves, but also then connect that person to the appropriate supports that might be needed for them, whether that's a chat with the family, wait session or a run or um, time off to relax, or if it's hooking them up with professional support yep. and suggesting that they go and work with someone like a psychologist. Do you think they're the main points of contact, I guess, when it comes to supporting players or, or are there others? I think it varies from person to person. There's yep. a couple. I, I like to consider them in terms of informal and, and formal almost, yeah. but if I'm a coach really... I'm trying to leverage my knowledge of the person yep. and my relationship with that person to not tell them where they need to go, but yep. ask them where they think they almost need, mm. need to go. Mm -hmm. Because there are lots of different experiences that we can have. Therefore, there are lots of different responses that are most appropriate to what's going on. Yeah. And so, yeah, I, I'd want to work with the player and say, you know, I, I've noticed that this is going on. What, what do you usually do when this happens? Yeah. Do you Do you take time off? Do you like to read a book? Do you want... Do you want to go for a run? Do you want to skip a session? Do you want to chat to one of the coaches? Yep. Can I hook you up with a mate or a teammate? Or do you want it to be outside of football? Yep. Do you want it at the professional level? Where do we think it's gotten to? I think it's I think it's a it's a bit of a collaboration in this sense, which mm. again I love because it it's not we're not putting these coaches on a pedestal where they have to take on the role of resolving everything. Yeah. It's not their job to act as therapists, but rather to work with the people yeah. to help them figure out what's actually best for them in those moments. That's why it's so valuable. They are, yeah, the, the oversight's awesome. Yeah, incredibly important resource, aren't they? Mm. We've talked a lot about how to react when players actually need support, but what proactive measures can coaches take to help ensure that environment's really comfortable for a player? Yeah, I, I really, I get, I get asked this question a lot and I really like it because I think that most of the things that I would suggest 
aren't revolutionary. They're not revelationary either. A lot of this stuff would come intuitively to coaches. It's just a matter of actually prioritizing it and emphasizing that it gets done. So when I think of proactive measures, it's brainstorming with the group that you've got. How do I make this a comfortable and welcoming place? Is it the colors? Is it the time frame? Is it the way that we ramp up into training and have meetings before and after? Is it the flexibility that we've got? So I look to making a space that's welcoming, I look to creating a place where people feel like they can be themselves for, yeah. for better or worse and through thick and thin in football. Mm-hmm. I think of communication. Yep. So actually creating communication lines and making it known where people can go if they ever need or want to explore certain things. And I think one of the like one of the most basic things and that I always certainly loved in my football was that making sure that at the core of it, it's not just about Football f- football is about so much more than playing the game, winning and losing. It's about camaraderie. It's about community. It's about growing and developing and committing to things and showing discipline. And so I think there's all of that stuff plus fun. I think finding a yeah. way to continue making football fun for people yep. um, goes a long way in making people want to be there. I guess you, you look at clubs across Australia and mental health becoming an increasing issue especially in, in recent times, and COVID has been a, a bit of a vehicle for that. With that in mind, how, how can coaches really adapt their philosophies to, to suit the individual and, or, or the collective? So I think historically there was this take on mental health that it was you either had it or, or you didn't have it. Yeah. It's kind of like this is a depressed person, this is a not depressed person. You're either in one bucket or the other, and if you were in the bucket that had that experience of mental ill health, it was very scary. It's very hard to deal with, probably not solvable or fixable or helpable. And therefore that person's broken and I can't, I can't work with it. Yep. The more we've come to learn about the phenomenon of mental health and people's true experience, we see that it's really not one or the other, but rather that mental health sits along this continuum. Yep. So there are moments in our life where we're likely to be smashing it, feeling really good on top of the world, yep. really thriving. Equally, there are going to be times where we'll be struggling and finding it really difficult to manage what's going on. And then there's this huge gap in the middle, which is just where we're ticking Ks over into the legs and we're doing okay, we're coping, we're keeping our head above water. And so I think this shift in philosophy from it used to be you had it or you didn't versus now everyone's going to experience it. I think adopting this philosophy is the key you know this is the shift in the industry this is the way that we understand it to exist and i think coaches are starting to learn this as they see it in their players and Mm. they see it in themselves and i think the beauty of this sort of idea is that it's really liberating because you kind of get a sense of okay i'm not alone they're not alone i can be supported they can be supported so i think coming to that sort of idea around it is is really big that it's a key understanding that we certainly yeah. promote in the program yeah and i think the thing with the continuum as well and this is my understanding of it but you can shift um and you're not just categorized into into one like you might have a bad day um and then all of a sudden you're moving from coping into into thriving or, or vice versa so it, yeah I, I think it's really important to note and this is what the education that you've given me as well is that you can't just um or you're not just sort of set in one one mode it's great to see that you've been paying attention. I love that. <laughs> um, but, but yeah, absolutely. Me- mental health is so dynamic. Our experience with it, like you said, it shifts, it bounces around, yep. up and down throughout the course of 
a year, a week, even a day sometimes. And mm. so having an awareness of that allows us to sit with things really differently. Yeah. What, what do you see as the biggest challenges the sporting landca- uh, landscape faces from a, a mental health perspective? One of the, I guess, nice things about mental ill health is that it, it doesn't discriminate. So everyone can experience challenges relative to their own circumstances. There, there are risk factors for, for things. We know um, socioeconomic status. There are some genetic things. So th- there are um, risk factors to experiencing mental mm. ill health, but yep. anyone across the board can experience environmental challenges relative to their circumstances. I think specific to the industry, I think it's a lot of stuff that comes with elevated profile. So public scrutiny, um, managing your performance on that stage with the extra pressure that's built up. I think interestingly, as we move into this big data world, there's a lot of things around um, confidentiality and data security um, that comes with the institutionalization of athletes more broadly. But yeah, generally I'd say athletes feel the same stuff that we do. Yeah. You know, they, they have their ups and downs. They're just people, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah. Who can kick a ball really nicely. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. What, what can a society do to, to weather the challenges that elite athletes, but also community athletes are facing? So I look at, um, I look at society and communities the same way that I look at a football club. It's just a slightly bigger version. Yep. And so I look at society as really similar to communities and football clubs. I, I think that, the model that we preach here at Tackle Your Feelings is really similar to what I, I want everyone to be doing. You know, I think as at a societal level, if we can understand that mental health is this dynamic experience that shifts, yep. if we can start to build awareness so that we can recognise our own signs and symptoms as well as the signs and symptoms of people around us, all of a sudden we're in a really, really powerful position to be able to respond to them and to connect people to the relevant supports that they need, whether that's internal or external with other people. So you said, what do we do at a societal level? I think it's the same as what we do at a football level. Mm -hmm. I want to build that capacity so that there's ecosystems of support that people are aware of. I talk about it as if like a, how can we support people? But I think... On the flip side, people are also more open to receiving and accepting and asking for support yeah. when they know that the people around them understand that their experience might change, have awareness of you know, what my struggling looks like, what my coping, what my thriving looks like. Yep. If I really know and trust that you're looking out for me, I'm going to come to you when I need it. Um, so I look at society as the same as community, the same as football clubs. Yeah. Uh, let's change pace, get into uh, some quick hands. Uh, who's your, your favourite local coach um, from your experience? From my favourite favourite coach I played under. Yep. This is a, and this is a funny one. It's, it's a name that no one would recognise except for people at my club. Um, he's actually a dad of one of my good mates. His name's Gary Bluestein. Yep. Um, and I, it's funny, when I think back to junior football, he's just a name that stands out to me in a big way, as does um, Danny Arusi. I think these were my coaches from like under 11s to under 15s. Yeah. <laughs> what was his most like used expression? These days? Rack your brain, come on. Give us, give us the, something. <laughs> these days, I don't know about back then, the reason why I loved those two coaches were because I reckon they were the ones that really saw me as an individual. Yep. So I had a relationship with them that wasn't just play better, move faster, kick differently. Yep. But it seemed like they knew me and were invested in me. Um, but now the, the most common catchphrase that Gary Bluesteam would say which piggybacks on what you and I said at the beginning of this is kind of that sentiment of, 
Oh, what could have been? You know, I always said you could have been the best janky. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I get that a lot now. Yeah. What's, what's your favorite, in general, what's your favorite coach saying? There's, there's plenty of them out there. I've spent a lot of time in the ammos. There's no shortage of yeah. um, great sayings. Certainly with curse words mixed up in them. I think there was a, not, not necessarily a saying, but the, the Danny Aruzzi guy that I, I, I mentioned before, he had this big, big mentality of, you guys are powerful beyond what you know. Yep. Like you're capable of more than you think you are. So he, he invested in trying to push us. And there was almost a practical level to it as well, where it was like, whatever you do, add one. And it wasn't this toxic manipulative, yep. you have to add one, but rather, again, you're powerful beyond yeah, what yeah. you know. So yeah doing a set of 10 push-ups at the beginning in the preseason, everyone would do 11. Yeah. And it was sort of on his call, but you get to halfway through the season and we've inbuilt it. Yeah. So you're doing 10 plus one. And, and I still like do that today. Mm-hmm. Like there are times where I like, I mean, I don't do that many push-ups, but yeah. <laughs> if I had to pump out a set of something, I've got that in my head of like, do yeah. one because you actually can. Yeah. Sometimes you can push yourself. In terms of strict sayings though, now that I've thought about it, we had a thirds coach at our club for a while who I reckon – he didn't quite back the skill set of the guys in the thirds team. Yep. And he was this classic character, very larger than life, loud sort yeah. of <laughs> bustling dude. And he would always pump out this line of, he goes, I don't want you fumbling around with the ball. None of this handball garbage. Kick along. He goes, I'd much rather a 50 metre muck up than you guys stuffing around with handballs <laughs> in the back line. Um, the only thing is he didn't say muck up. He, yeah. he used a different word, which yeah. I'll leave to your imagination. Yeah, we'll leave, we might leave that there. <laughs> 50 metre muck up. Yeah. What's, um, who's the most challenging coach you've played under and, and why was that style so challenging for you to, to thrive in? You don't need to name names if you don't, need, if you I, don't want to. I actually had a, a pretty good relationship with a lot of the coaches. I think the ones that I probably struggled with most were the ones who ran those old school pre-seasons with no explanation. Yep. So it's kind of just like, all right, guys, come in. It's a two-hour session. You've got no idea what you're doing. Yep. They don't tell you. They go, okay, we're going to do a running exercise. Start running. When do we stop? Uh, yeah. How fast do you want us to go? And the instruction was just start running. So I remember finding where there was a real power imbalance and there was no attempt to bridge it with communication, that that really challenged me but I also think of challenging it in a positive way I remember I had a coach who this was early days in sort of seniors reserves days where it was a pre-season and I was running and in in my head I, I had a couple of years where I used to do a bit of bludging in pre-season stuff where I'd, I'd go to all the sessions but I found myself falling into this pattern of I'm going to run like let's say we're doing a 400 yeah. I'll run the first 320 330 350 at a reasonable pace and then I'll blitz home with a sprint and it looks impressive and I feel good yeah. and get to overtake a couple of guys at the end. And I, and, and I thought I was running well. It was like, save some in the tank so you can finish strong. Yeah. And I remember this one coach at the time, he was an assistant coach, his name was Chuka Siegel. And he pulled me up after a little while and he, it was based on his observations. He's like, LJ, I can see that it looks like you're cruising a little bit in the beginning and then really blitzing it at the back yeah. end. Why are you doing that? How can we shift that intensity to the beginning? Yeah. How can we get you running hard from the start and then developing that extra mm. tank at the back end? Yep. And I remember being really put off because I was like, oh my God, how does he know? Yeah. I'm like, he's caught me and I'm in trouble now. But once I let it sit and breathe for a minute, I was like, this is awesome. This guy has actually yeah. seen me. Yeah. He knows or he has thoughts on what my potential could be. And he's actually stepped in and tried to support me. It wasn't like a, he didn't call me out in the middle of the group and say, you're out, mate. Yeah. He came up to me privately and said, yeah. I've noticed this. Yep. 
how can we flip it around? And so I remember really respecting yeah. that as a challenge to me. And finally, who's the coach you'd love to play under that you've observed? Can I say Al Pacino from any given Sunday? Of course you can. <laughs> inch um, by inch. Inch by inch, play by play. Yeah, um, I'm, a, I'm a big Saints supporter. So as the narrative goes, yep. I'd run into a brick wall for Brett Radden. Yep. But truth be told, and I don't know, this is a bit corny, but if I really think about it, the coach that I'd most love to play under would be a guy named Adam Andrews, who I don't even know, um, but he's the head coach at Ajax Football Club at the moment. Yep. And I reckon I'd give just about anything to be able to lace up the boots and play again. So, yeah, I reckon him. Get those shoulders strapped up, mate, and see how you go. Oh, I don't know if there's enough tape in Victoria at the moment <laughs> to, to cover these guys, but, yeah, certainly, certainly would be taping the shoulders. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us on the Coach's Box, Luke. Yeah, not a problem. It's been great to be here. Great to have a chat. Great stuff. Love your work, Guthers.